This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy, an apologetics ministry designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the Academy offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the Academy goes live, and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining Listening to the Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we're getting worldviews right. This is the fourth part of our lesson series on stop shifting the goalposts. And what we want to do in this series is help you to better define terms, to better understand what terms have meant historically and what the terms mean today, so that when we're going into these uh, kinds of conversations, we can be more effective. Uh, The first week, we uh, looked at a recent debate, and it was interesting because the debate was was kind of germane to the topic that I had planned on for for that day. even though that I was informed of the debate uh, beforehand. And anyway, the way things worked out, I believe it was the Lord's will to go into that because I received a question on Facebook um, that was interesting. And the question, I read it uh, the first couple lessons uh, of this series, but the question was essentially, how do we how do we define terms? I mean, how do we get around the gap, because a lot of times atheists are um, blaming Christians and in context here, creationists um, of defining terms uh, in a way that is more uh, favorable to their own views. And of course, Christians often blame atheists of doing the exact same thing. And so how do we how do we ascertain you know, the truth about what maybe some of these things mean, of course, but then at the same time, how do we deal with the conversational aspect of it? How, when, when the rubber meets the road, um, how do we make an impact in our spiritual conversations? And so, uh, week one, we looked at, uh, that debate and then we took on the word literal. What do creationists mean when we use the term uh, literal, and I argued that it's it, it means something natural. So when we talk about reading the Bible literally, what we really mean is reading the Bible naturally. And if you go back and listen to that lesson, uh, I did make some suggestions uh, along those lines. All right, now the next thing we talked about was science. The word science, uh, that was part two of this lesson series. And we looked at the different kinds of science, the different ways that science has been defined uh, over the years, and um, and how uh, we should be uh, defining science and making sure to draw clear lines between different types of science and the different philosophies that undergird uh, scientific research, and, and being sure not only to look out for those, uh, but also to make sure that we are uh, properly defining them in the context of the conversation that we're having. And then we looked at evolution, kinds, and species. That was last week. We looked at evolution, kinds, and species, trying to uh, gain an understanding of those words um, and the nuances behind them. And now this week, we want to deal with getting worldviews right. Now, I have quite a few terms that I want to go through this week, and uh, they're all <laughs> they're all doozies. So, um, but I, nevertheless, I don't want this series to extend on indefinitely. We're going to have to get a move on. So, um, 
in light of that, I'm going to move as quickly as I can through these. And uh, we want to get through, hopefully today, the words, uh, the terms nothing. Yes, nothing. N-O-T-H-I-N-G. Nothing. The term worldview. The term atheist or atheism. And uh, and then the term Christian. Uh, and uh, hopefully... Hopefully, I want to get to presuppositionalism. Um, these are huge topics, so I've got, I've got a lot more notes probably than we're going to actually be able to to peruse through. But but we're going to look and see if we can get through some of these. All right, why don't we start at the top? Let's look at the word nothing. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time here, and if you've been listening to the podcast for any amount of time, uh, you might understand why. I actually did a whole lesson on this not too long ago. Um, Lesson number 35, we dealt with a universe from nothing, and we looked at a claim made by a very popular uh, astrophysicist um, slash, uh, I would argue, scientism popularizer, um, uh, Dr. Lawrence Krauss, and he, uh, in a 2012, I want to say, interview with CNN in preparation for his book of the same title, um, began talking about a universe from nothing and really getting this message out there that that uh, we don't uh, need God because at every turn, science is disproving him. At every turn, um, as it as it turns out, science has an answer. That's his claim, and with respect to his argument, um, he says that you can have a universe from absolutely nothing. And we looked at that in that lesson. But what's interesting is 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 the way that the term there is being defined. Just to bring out this part of it, we'll talk about this real quick and then move on. Um. It seems ludicrous to have to define this word. I mean, you think, surely, everybody knows what the word nothing means. But an astrophysicist might actually be using this term a lot differently than a normal person would use the term. And when you have somebody who aims to bridge the gap, like Dr. Lawrence Krauss, he wants to make this information more publicly available and layman accessible. The problem is he conveniently does not define his terms. And so he uses the term nothing in popular works in a different way than a a layman reading would understand the term, and quite frankly, uh, I would argue that there w- would be even people who were more technically astute who would miss this. So, um, it, it it might seem ludicrous to define this, but it's definitely a scientifically and philosophically confusing term, believe it or not. Now, here's the simplest definition of the term. It means nothing. It means no thing. No thing, as in not anything, not anything. And that means nothing. It's hard. It's, it's, it's really hard to imagine, to actually think about. Bear in mind, I am not talking about empty space. Empty space has weight. It has mass. It has it has it has weight. It is not nothing. Empty space is something. Here's what Dr. William Lane Craig says in his book On Guard. Quote, properly understood, nothing does not mean just empty space. Nothing is the absence of anything whatsoever, even space itself. As such, nothingness has literally no properties at all, since there isn't anything to have any properties, close quote. You know, I think that accurately sums it up. But he continues on here, quote, If if something can come into being from nothing, then it becomes inexplicable why just anything or everything doesn't come into being from nothing. Think about it. 
why don't bicycles and Beethoven and root beer just pop into being from nothing? Why, I love this, why is it only universes that can come into being from nothing? What makes nothingness so discriminatory? There can't be anything about nothingness that favors universes, for nothingness doesn't have any properties, nor can anything constrain nothingness, for there isn't anything to be constrained. And so he's kind of quipping this here. Uh, by the way, that's the end of the quote. Um, he, 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 he kind of exposes uh, the erroneous thinking by using uh, a, a bit of sarcasm. And, of course, Craig, I don't know uh, if you are aware of who he is. I certainly don't agree with, uh, with everything he says, but I, I enjoy reading some of the things from his uh, ministry from a philosophical perspective. And... Um, uh, I really appreciate his use of sarcasm here to kind of bring out this point. Um, it's so true. It, if nothingness is something, uh, th- you know, if nothingness is a thing that 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 has properties, then it looks to me like it would um, be able to be constrained. But it it isn't anything. Nothingness does not have any such properties. And furthermore, nothingness appears to be discriminatory, according to Craig, uh, because it appears that only universes are the sorts of things that can come into being from nothingness. You see, it's very, very arbitrary to be able to say on the uh, atheist, astrophysicist part, uh, physicist uh, part, um, that only universes can do this. So it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense. It's it logically uh, there's there's just nothing to it. Let me give you another response from Craig. He says, quote, "Sometimes skeptics will respond to this point by saying that in physics, subatomic particles, so-called virtual particles, can come into being from nothing." Or certain theories of the origin of the universe are sometimes described in popular magazines as getting something from Nothing. So that the universe is the exception to the proverb, quote, there ain't no free lunch. This skeptical uh, response represents a deliberate abuse of science. The theories in question have to do with particles originating as a fluctuation of energy contained in the vacuum. The vacuum in modern physics is not what the layman understands by vacuum, namely nothing. Rather, In physics, the vacuum is a sea of fluctuating energy governed by physical laws and having a physical structure. To tell the layman that on such theory something comes from nothing is a distortion of those theories. Close quote. And this is the rub. And if you go back to that episode, by the way, it was lesson number 35, A Universe from Nothing. If you go back to that on our website, and we'll put a link to it here in the show notes, uh, you can take a listen and see where we're coming from on that. And we, what we do is we play one of the video interviews that uh, Dr. Krauss was on, and we, we go ahead and uh, listen through his uh, interview and stop and make comments along the way. Um, where there are problematic things. So uh, take that for what it's worth, but let's understand that when somebody says that a universe can come into being from nothing, they don't mean nothing in in the first sense of the word that you think it. Um, it it's, it's not the same thing. Actual nothingness is not anything, and to date there is no science anywhere. Nobody has some science that says that nothing can uh, produce something or that something can produce itself out of nothingness. This would literally be worse than magic. Let's look at the second term, worldview. Worldview. Now, I've talked about this on my blog quite a bit, and I've used uh, one of the illustrations that I liked uh, to, to kind of help you understand what a worldview uh, is. And so the illustration is that of an image filter. An image filter. Uh, when you post uh, pictures, videos, whatever, on uh, Facebook, Instagram, things like that, a lot of times, before you send out that picture, you will 
run it through some sort of an image filter, whether that's built in the software or, or whatever. And what it is designed to do is take the original image and uh, project that image in a way that um, where certain values are adjusted, such as the contrast or the tint or the blur factor or whatever of that image. And a worldview is kind of like an image filter, except a lot of times when you actually see it, it's 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 seen in in reverse. So when you're talking with somebody, you might not get to see their worldview. You might not get to see what the filter is, but you do get a glimpse of the values that have been adjusted. Of course, I'm using values in a in a sense of the term that allows me to trade on both notions, but the values I'm talking about are the moral values that somebody holds to a lot of times is something that is easy for you to see in conversation and in daily experience with a person, even if you don't understand their actual worldview at its core. A lot of times their values will give you an idea of what that worldview is. But of course, their point is that they take in the world the same way that you do, but how they react to the world and project themselves in the world is different than how you do. And that adjustment is in virtue of a worldview. You see the world 100% differently if you're an atheist versus if you're a Christian versus if you're the Baha'i faith versus if you're um, a, a Buddhist. Uh, all of those types of people live in the same world, but they interpret the world differently and project different values as a result of that uh, way of interpretation. Of course, that doesn't help you with which one is true or which one is right or which one is better. There are... Um, uh, different uh, tests about coherence and things to, to get into for all of that. Um, and we know this as people who are interested in, in these subjects. We realize that um, that only one of these worldviews can be true. And of course, we think that Christianity is the correct one for many reasons. But the point here is just to get an understanding of what is meant by the term worldview. According to Ken Samples, he's a theologian, and his book, uh, one of his books, is called A World of Difference. A World of Difference. And in this book, he he says that a worldview uh, refers, quote, uh, to the cluster of beliefs a person holds about the most significant issues of life, such as God, the cosmos, knowledge, values, humanity, in history. These beliefs, which may in reality be right or wrong, or a combination thereof, not unlike the visual clarity or distortion given by glasses, form a big picture, a general outlook, or a grand perspective on life and the world. In more technical terms, a worldview forms a mental structure that organizes one's basic or ultimate beliefs. This framework supplies a comprehensive view of what a person considers real, true, rational, good, valuable, and beautiful. In this vein, philosopher Ronald H. Nash defines a worldview as a conceptual scheme by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. Close quote. Now, that is a pretty succinct definition. Uh, it's, it's, it's clear. It's not, uh, it's thorough as well. All right. So um, it is this way that we look at the world and everything, everything, even what is, uh, according to samples, even what is real, true, rational, good, valuable, and even beautiful, that is all going to be determined by the way that you view the world. And of course, herein, he kind of uses the uh, idea of glasses, and that's fine. Um, I have used the term glasses um, uh, before, and I've seen it used before. Uh, Ken Ham uses that a lot in Answers in Genesis, talking about different color glasses. But I like the image filter illustration because it takes it one step further. Um, it's the same underlying idea, but it allows you to extend the idea to how other people see uh, you. They see what you believe, but they might not see your worldview. Now, based on what you believe, somebody who is thinking about it might could um, 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 
look closer and be able to ascertain what your worldview is. For example, um, somebody, you know, people say uh, the craziest thing sometimes. Sometimes people say that there is no such thing as lifestyle evangelism. Lifestyle evangelism. That is um, simply living a Christ-like life. Yes, you should share Christ with others. Absolutely. But simply living a a Christ-like life is seemingly to me, step one. I heard a preacher say the other day, I know of no other kind of evangelism other than lifestyle evangelism. Look, if you're not living the message, why would anybody else want the message? And that's the point. So um, living like Christ (laughs) exists because he does and like he has... um, control over your life because he does is crucial to seeing others come to Christ. It's crucial to evangelism. So we need to be able to live in such a way that our worldview is, in fact, put on display. Helpfully, uh, Samples says that a worldview functions in much the same way as a pair of glasses through which a person sees the world. The interpretive lens helps people make sense of life and comprehend the world around them. Worldviews also shape people's understanding of their unique place on earth. Sometimes worldviews bring clarity, and other times they can distort reality. And of course, this is true um, in, (laughs) in my experience. You know, I talk with people who think I'm deluded because I'm a Christian, but I think they're deluded because they're an atheist. Uh, so it's it's there is a subjective nature to it, but it's dealing with an objective reality. Worldviews um, are both, in that sense, both um, subjective and objective. They are subjective because different people can hold different ones, but they're objective because uh, really only one can be right. The world really only is one way. Does that make sense to you? And so if the world is really only one way, then worldviews must be objective. And um, this is why we argue that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh to the Father but by me, um, that is why we hold to that. And that's why we proclaim that. Because the only way, if our worldview is right, the only way to get to God is to go through the person of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Um, we have pretty good reason to believe our worldview is right. I recently wrote a blog, and I will um, I will go ahead and make a note here um, to, uh, to put this in the show notes. But I recently wrote a blog post called um, Pie in the Sky or Steak on the Plate. What is Christianity? And, of course, um, what I'm addressing in this post is the idea of of practical atheism. In other words, claiming to believe in God, but then living as if he does not exist. But there's a, a kind of a higher purpose of the post as well. And um, that's in there. In the, in the post, I talk about the three R's of Christianity, the reality, the reason, and the robustness. And here's um, the kind of the crux of the matter. If a worldview is characteristic of reality, there's going to be good reasons to hold it and it's going to be very robust. There might be questions that don't make a lot of sense, but all in all, it's going to be a robust worldview where the the, the main facts are, are generally well supported, and there's going to be good reasons for believing it. All right, now, um, trading on that notion, if there is uh, something that has good reasons to believe, if it has good reasons to believe, then it's probably, not necessarily, but it's probably going to match reality pretty well. And if, if you have good reasons to believe something, it's likely that uh, those reasons form a robustness. They there, There's um, a robustness to whatever that thing is that you believe. All right. And then following and finishing that notion is if something is robust, if a worldview is robust, then it's very likely that there are good reasons to believe it. And it's very, very likely that it's characteristic of reality. So that is kind of how you, in my view, that's how you determine, um, you know, the likelihood that a worldview is true. Now, of course, the Christian worldview is not based on probability at all. We'll talk about that sometime. But 
point that I want to bring across to you today here is that in order to get to the bottom of a worldview, um, in order to find out which one best matches reality, uh, there, you know, there are a few things that you're going to have to do. Um, is atheism a worldview? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. That's a big, big question. Now, the Bible clearly teaches, and in finishing out this part here, the Bible clearly teaches a, a, a contrast between worldviews. So if our worldview is the correct worldview, and we believe that it is, then, um, then the Bible is going to have a lot to say about the nature of other worldviews. Here are just uh, three verses. Matthew twelve thirty. This is Jesus' words. He says, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Pretty exclusivist terms. James 4, 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world, get this, is the enemy of God. Romans 12.2 says this, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, the Bible has a lot to say about the nature of worldviews. It was the Apostle Paul who talked about the vain philosophies of men and that we ought to cast down arguments that try to exalt themselves up against, um, up against God. And so we need to be clearly uh, drawing lines and distinctions between these other views and making sure that we are not um, um, bringing in and importing in ideas into Christianity that are fundamentally unchristian. And, and look, this is something for a, a different time. Uh, but I would recommend you check out. Now, I'm, I'm actually doing something I wouldn't normally do here. I'm going to recommend a book that I have not read because I have it on pretty good authority that this is a good book. Written by Jeff Myers, who does a lot of work on worldview. Um, I believe he is associated with Summit Ministries out there on the West Coast. And he has written a book called The Secret uh, Battle of of against God. I think that's what it's called. Um, and basically it's, it deals with ideas that have made their way into the church that are fundamentally un-Christian and you wouldn't really know it unless you thought about it deeper. So, um, I, I would, I would highly recommend you check that out. I have it on good authority. That that's a good book. I do own the book. I've just not read it for myself quite yet. Okay. Atheism. Atheism. Oh, this is a big topic. This is a really, really big topic. And because of that, I, I do have an upcoming article coming out about this on the website. It's not written yet. Um, I'll have it done hopefully in a few weeks. Uh, but 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 we're gonna we're gonna deal with this. I'm gonna write about this because I think it's important. Now, um, let me go ahead and make a recommendation. I don't have the link and I will try to uh, link you to it. Um, but Andy Bannister over at RZIM, that's Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, he has done some, uh, some work on this in the past, and he's written about this some, and he has written an article about this, so I'm going to link you over to his article, and you can read it for what it's worth, but I've got my own coming out in a few weeks, so you can look out for that. Okay, is atheism a worldview? I want to look at two definitions of atheism according to Webster's. Let's start there. Two definitions of atheism, according to Webster's. Number one, a lack of belief or a strong disbelief in the existence of a god or any gods. All right, number two, a philosophical or religious position characterized by disbelief in the existence of a god or any gods. Now, almost every atheist you, you, you see, you, you interact with, wants definition one to be true of them. That's what they want to say, okay? That, that in the conversation, that's what they want to say is what best characterizes their view. A lack of belief. It's simply a lack of belief or a strong disbelief in the existence of a god or any gods, but they say it does nothing to influence any of the rest of my life. Uh, but now, wait a minute now. As a Christian looking at this, isn't it true that Romans 
12.2 and James 4.4 4 and Matthew 12.30 says that if they're not with the program, if they're not with Jesus, if they're not with Christianity, then it is going to fundamentally change the way they live their lives. James 4.4 4 says that if you are a friend of the world, then you are at enmity with God. You are an enemy of God. Don't tell me that you can be an enemy of God and your life not be different. So while while definition one, a lack of belief, is what most, most atheists would want to say characterizes their view, in the way they act, the way they act, actions speak louder than words. The old principle. The way they act betrays their speech because they act as though it is a philosophical position or even, and I don't typically use this language, but many do. Many do say that atheism is actually a religious position. Now, um, many atheists, to, to kind of you know put another level on that, many atheists claim that humanism is um, more accurately describes their worldview. They're okay with uh, saying they're an atheist, and they say that their atheism is a part of that, but ultimately that it is um, humanism that describes what they believe. And so in some conversations, I give them the term. I say, all right, you know, uh, if you want to be called a humanist, that's fine. There's problems with humanism. Um, and, and, and so humanism to me does not uh, provide, and I think part of this, uh, just to back up, I think part of the um, appeal to using humanism instead of the term atheism is humanism allows somebody to bring the evolution piece in in into play in such a way that it is germane to a, a better functioning system of morality M morality is is where we're getting to the golden rule treating one another as you want to be treated that's the basis for evolutionary morality i want to give you a few things um i want to read to you a very very lengthy response on this issue from Dr. William Lane Craig. Um, the problem, just to kind of set this up, is that atheism has been redefined many times over in order to accommodate new ideas. Uh, when things become harder to hold to, when a position becomes harder to hold, a lot of times the definitions will change in order to make it more um, amicable to those who want to hold the view. So let me read this response to you, and I apologize. It is lengthy, but he's going to accomplish here much more than I could accomplish uh, just ram rambling on uh, on my own. In a lengthy response to a questioner, Craig writes the following, quote, Certain atheists in the mid-20th century were promoting the so-called presumption of atheism. At face value, this would appear to be the claim that in the absence of evidence for the existence of God, we should presume that God does not exist. Atheism is a sort of default position, and the theist bears a special burden of proof with regard to his belief that God exists. So understood, such an alleged presumption is clearly mistaken. For the assertion that there is no God, is just as much a claim to knowledge as is the assertion that there is a God. Therefore, the former assertion requires justification just as the latter does. It is the agnostic who makes no knowledge claim at all with respect to God's existence. He confesses that he doesn't know whether there is a God or whether there is no God. But when you look more closely at how protagonists of the presumption of atheism use the term atheist, you discover that they were defining the word in a non-standard way, synonymous with non-theist. So understood, the term would encompass agnostics and traditional atheists, along with those who think the question meaningless, uh, which would be verificationists. As Antony Flew confesses, the word atheist has in the present context to be construed in an unusual way. Nowadays, it is normally taken to mean someone who explicitly denies the existence of God. 
But here it has to be understood not positively, but negatively. With the original Greek uh, prefix A being read in the same way in atheist as is customarily in uh, words as amoral. In this interpretation, interpretation of uh, an atheist becomes not someone who positively asserts the non-existence of God, but someone who is simply not a theist. And that's from a companion to Philosophy of Religion, um, edited by Philip Quinn and Charles Taliaferro, Oxford, Blackwell, 1997. The Presumption of Atheism by Anthony Flew. That was the article. Such a redefinition of the word atheist trivializes the claim of the presumption of atheism. For on this definition, atheism ceases to be a view. It is merely a psychological state, which is shared by people who hold various views or no view at all. On this redefinition, even babies who hold no opinion at all on the matter count as atheists. In fact, our cat Muff counts as an atheist on this definition since she has, to my knowledge, no belief in God. One would still require justification in order to know either that God exists or that he does not exist, which is the question we're really interested in. So why, you might wonder, would atheists be anxious to so trivialize their position? Here I agree with the questioner that a deceptive game is being played by many atheists. If atheism is taken to be a view, namely the view that there is no God, then atheists must shoulder their share of the burden of proof to support this view. But many atheists admit freely that they cannot sustain such a burden of proof. So they try to shirk their... Um, Excuse me, let me see. Oh, okay. So they try to shirk their epistemic responsibility by redefining atheism so that it is no longer a view, but just a psychological condition, which as such makes no assertions. They are really closet agnostics who want to claim the mantle of atheism without shouldering its responsibilities. This is disingenuous and still leaves us asking, so is there a God or not? Close quote. What a concise um, understanding. You know, really that's the issue at hand here is I talk to a lot of atheists who are very, very quick to um, act as if there is no God who are very anti-religion, who are um, adamantly opposed to anything that has to do with the things of God. And yet they define the term atheism as though they are simply agnostic. And they say that they're open to evidence. God has given us no evidence, they say. But we know that's not true. Why is that not true? Because the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. In Romans 1, it says that everybody knows that there's a God. Because God has made the invisible things of the world to be clearly seen, even uh, the Godhead. So, it's really interesting that uh, in order for an atheist to be able to sustain his position because he can't sustain it philosophically with good evidence, he must redefine the term to mean something much more broad, to mean something that even their cat, even the atheist cat, can be an atheist on that term of the word atheist. And it's, it's really trivial, trivializing it. Um, in, in his book, Can Man Live Without God?, Zacharias lists definition, uh, definitions of the word atheism from multiple sources. Here's one source. Quote, atheism is the deliberate, definite, dogmatic denial of the existence of God. 
It is not satisfied with appropriate truth or relative truth, but claims to see the ins and outs of the game quite clearly, being the absolute denial of the absolute. This, uh, close quote, this definition was from Etienne Bourne in Atheism, written in 1961. Here's the next one, quote, An atheist is a person who maintains that there is no God. That is, that the sentence, God exists, expresses a false proposition, a person who rejects belief in God. Close quote. That was the Encyclopedia of Philosophy in 1967. Here's one from 1972. Quote, We atheists believe that nature simply exists. Matter is. Material is. This was from Madeline Murray O'Hare in What on Earth is an Atheist? Again in 1972. Zacharias writes this, quote, Atheism is not merely a passive unbelief in God, but an assertive denial of the major claims of all varieties of theism. Atheism contradicts belief in God with a positive affirmation of matter as ultimate reality. Some atheists avoid this frontal attack upon theism and try to soften the, that absolute denial of God. Their argument asserts that God's existence is rationally unprovable and is therefore, at best, a meaningless proposition. In effect, that our atheism is arrived at by default. This approach is often taken so as to be conveniently relieved of the burden of defending one's own alternative view. In actual terms, both the soft and hard form of atheism accomplish the same goal and end up denying God's existence either implicitly or explicitly. Any attempt to escape the ramifications of its absoluteness is unsuccessful. Close quote. Not to mention, of course, that looking back at these other definitions that Zacharias has helpfully provided, you can really see that the definition has taken a different shape over time, as alluded to earlier by Craig. Now, here is just a, a quick sketch of what I'm probably going to write about when I, when I take to write about this subject. We're probably going to deal with the myth of neutrality, the myth of neutrality. In other words, um, I aim to show, when I write this article, I, um, I aim to show that um, that it's a myth that you can be neutral with respect to the question ab about God. All right, I'm going to deal with the problem of proselytizing. The problem of proselytizing. You know, many who want to claim that they are just an atheist with a, with a passive um, disbelief in God also have radio shows, and they have TV shows, and they actively try to convert other people to their atheism, to their philosophical worldview that supposedly they don't hold. And so I find that to be wildly problematic. And so we are going to deal with that. And then thirdly, um, and of course we might talk about more things than this, but thirdly, I definitely want to get in there. The atheists, one exception. In other words, uh, scientifically speaking, how do we, ha how are we here? How do we get a universe on atheism? And we talked about that a little bit at the opening of the show, but 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 how do we get a a universe on atheism? It appears to me you need one miraculous exception at the beginning. If you just give them their one exception, oh, they can they can come up with plenty of ways to explain how we got to where we are today. But their one exception doesn't hold. It doesn't hold. It's uh, <laughs> atheism of the gaps. I guess you could say. So what is my best advice on this issue? Look, simply ask. Simply ask, what does a person believe? Work through these definitions. Clarify terms in the beginning of the conversation. Move the conversation forward by understanding how they are defining these terms and show them, if possible, where they are wrong, if they are. Or be willing to change your view if you are wrong. Do more research. Um, and again, I mentioned at the beginning Andy Bannister's article, um, and it was well articulated, a uh, great article, well thought out piece on this, and I did make a note here. Um, it is called The Scandinavian Skeptic, or Why Atheism is a Belief System. And so we are going to put that link in the show notes. All right, let's move on quickly to the term Christian. Now, this is not a hard term. This is really not a hard term. Uh, 
to define logically. Defining it experientially is maybe a little bit different um, and existentially because people um, take this uh, designation. We, we often call them nominal Christians. They're, in other words, if they're a Christian by name, they take this designation, and yet they're probably not actual Christians because the fruit in their life just simply does not show that that they are. Um, you know, the Bible is quite clear that we can expect to see certain um, fruits coming from the life of somebody who claims to be a follower of Christ. And if those fruits are not present, we, of course, are not the judge of their salvation, and we, we can never know for ourselves. Um, but we are called to be fruit inspectors, and so it's pretty clear to see when somebody is living in direct, absolute denial of what Christianity teaches as a Christian, as a claimed Christian, then it's likely that they're probably just not. Um, so uh, where does the term come from? Well, um, Acts 11.26c says this, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, I'll admit that I have not done an in-depth study on this, although what I have, the study I have done, uh, I heard that this was actually a derogatory term at first. This was considered a derogatory term to be a follower of Christ, which, of course, completely makes sense based on what we know about um, the history of the early church. So according to the Bible, here are some qualifications. A Christian is someone who um, has been, number one, born again. Born again. John 3.3, 3, you can see this clearly uh, in this conversation going on between Jesus and Nicodemus. Born again. If you don't know what that means, again, uh, we're starting to run out of time, so I'm going to move a little quickly, but, but look that up. John 3. All right. Secondly, a Christian confesses Christ with their mouth and believes that God has raised Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, from the dead. And you can see that in Romans 10 and chapter 13. You must believe. You must actually believe. Not just say you believe. You must believe and confess Christ. Number three, it is someone who has received the earnest of the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, in their hearts, given by God as a result of being established in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 22. Look, that's it. you got to be born again, confess Christ with your mouth, really believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and then, of course, that means you are born again in that case, um, and you will know that because you will have received the earnest of the Holy Spirit in your hearts, and um, that will be given to you by God as a result of being established in Christ. Now, look, um, I, this is not a theology podcast. Uh, this is a creationism uh, podcast, okay? Um, there, there's probably going to be some of you on here who disagree a little bit with, um, you know, when the Holy Spirit enters and such like that. Let's just... Bear with me on that a little bit, okay? If you disagree with me on that, let's d agree to disagree. But I believe that the Bible teaches that when you get saved, you get the earnest of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's backed up by centuries and centuries of good um, uh, 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 Christian, not only scholarship, but of course Christian uh, pastors and teachers. Um, this is the historical understanding of the Spirit's relationship to the believer. All right, so if you have a different interpretation, that's fine. Um, don't, you know, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Uh, that's fine. All right. Now, um, quickly before we finish up, I want to get into the term presuppositionalism, presuppositionalism. Um, and, and let me say one final thing, excuse me, about, about being a Christian with respect to, um, creationism, belief about the age of the earth, evolution, such like that has nothing uh, to do with one's salvation, at least not an exclusion. I mean, if 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 those beliefs believe you to, or, or drive you to believe things about Jesus Christ that are not true, uh, there might be issues there. But I mean, that's that's taking something way far down the road. Uh, what I'm talking about is just this idea of. Uh, what you believe about the age of the earth somehow affecting your salvation. Um, it doesn't. We did a whole podcast on that. Uh, see um, lesson number 28. Does believing in billions of years and or evolution affect someone's salvation? And of course, we will put that in the show notes. Okay, moving on to presuppositionalism. And I wish I had about another hour <laughs> uh, to cover this, but I, I don't. 
I don't, all right? Um, presuppositional apologetics versus evidential apologetics. Um, I, I wrote about this on uh, my blog, and uh, let me just make a note right here to link to my blog post on this. That way you can kind of see my writings in a bit more of an expanded form here. Um, I claim to be a presuppositional apologist. Um, I am uh, more so along the lines of the Vantillian um school of presuppositional apologetics. Um, once again, this is not, not a theology podcast, but I am not reformed. All right. I, 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 I do not consider myself to be a Calvinist, although most Calvinists, uh, I don't even, I don't know that I want to say most, many Calvinists are going to be presuppositional apologists. And most will claim that I am inconsistent for not being reformed, uh, with, respect to my soteriology and, and such, um, and still holding presuppositionalism. But I, I, and again, this is not a theology podcast, but I, I, I believe I've got no problem there, uh, on my view of, of, of free will and sovereignty, uh, and being a presuppositionalist. All right. So, so I am one, uh, I are one <laughs> as they say here in the South. And, um, and here's why I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've been in. And it's like rescuing device after rescuing device after rescuing device. I mean, with evidential apologetics, yes, there are some who have done a lot of self-study and have been convinced over over the course of time based on looking at the evidence that they came to faith. Of course, of course that's the case. That doesn't surprise me at all. But that doesn't mean that when you are interacting with an unbeliever, that does not mean that you are using the biblical method of apologetics. And I might make some enemies here, and I'm sorry if I do. Um, but uh, I believe presuppositional apologetics is the faithful way uh, to to do apologetics scripturally. Now, if you don't agree with that, okay, fine. All right, you can still listen. We we still, I mean. Largely, we deal from an evidence, from a perspective of evidence. We deal with evidences as uh, as a podcast here because I, the main audience here we're talking with is Christians. Um, and so we want to get confirmation of the things we believe. We want to be able to look at God's world based on what we believe and use our worldview to filter that information and to, to, to understand it with respect to our worldview. Now, there's common misconceptions uh, with this. And again, you can see some of these if you look at the article. Uh, some say that we've got a chicken and an egg problem, all right? Um, you know, in other words, some say, well, wait a minute, you're, 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 you're saying that um, logic and science and morality, things like this, the, the, the main thrust of presuppositionalism um, is essentially that uh, atheists usually trade on Christian ideas to try to disprove God, such as logic. Well, where does logic come from? Well, you know, the laws of logic have, have been shown pretty definitively to come from a necessarily existent mind, um, depending on how you view the laws of logic as part of reality. And um, um, so laws of logic, uh, science, which requires the uniformity of nature, how do you get the uniformity of nature on atheism? Morality. Where do you get morality on atheism? Now, these are all things, um, morality and science and logic, these are all things that atheists try to use to disprove God. But they're all Christian ideas. They're all Christian ideas. So I encourage you to to really do some research. I write about this kind of thing pretty frequently on my blog, um, the laws of logic and presuppositionalism and things like that. So so check that out. Um, so there's a chicken and egg problem because they say, well, wait a minute. Um, aren't you using logic to reason to the conclusion that God exists? Doesn't that mean you're placing logic on a higher plane than God? And of course, it doesn't mean that at all. Once again, I'm going to uh, refer you to the article in order for you to get a better understanding of that. And then no evidence. Presuppositionalists don't use evidence. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth at all. Hello? You're listening to evidence. I'm giving you evidence today for the kinds of definitions that you should use. We give evidence all the time for, for creationism and for um, for a biblical understanding of of, of, of the view of reality. Uh, we give you evidence for these things. We just place evidence in context to its proper relationship to Christ. We don't put God on trial. 
We don't judge God. We don't get to do that. We start with the assumption that God exists and interpret the world from there in our conversations. We don't beat the atheist over the head with the Bible because he doesn't believe in God, but rather we say, look, why don't you just um, um, un- look at, uh, try to understand reality from our point of view and how this makes sense. And now let's look at your worldview. Let's see if what we experience in reality makes sense on your worldview. And of course it doesn't. All right. So that's how we, we, we use evidence, but we place it in context. We place it in context, realizing that Jesus Christ is the creator of the world. And so we don't want to put God on trial. And then there's the the charge of circular reasoning. Well, presuppositionalists just use circular reasoning. Well, it's not circular reasoning. By the way, all authorities must be circular at some point. So there is a sense in which it is a, a form of virtuous circular reasoning, but it's certainly not reasoning in a vicious circle. That's what is usually meant when somebody pejoratively uses the term circular reasoning, and that's not how presuppositionalists um, would would understand it. So uh, you definitely need to, to look up that. Now, just to give you a difference, um, this is kind of broadly speaking, uh, two different ways of characterizing the view uh, to make it more practical, um, um, might uh, the different views of apologetics, I should say, might sound something like this. So for presuppositionalism, you've got Dr. Greg Monson who would make a statement like this. The transcendental proof for God's existence is that without him, it is impossible to prove anything. The transcendental proof for God's existence is that without him, it is impossible to prove anything. Does that make sense to you? How can you prove anything if the methods of reasoning, which would be laws of logic and, and, and the ability to reason, if these are things that are provided by God, then in order to disprove God, you would have to use those things. In one sense, you are sawing off the branch of the tree on which you are sitting. All right? Now, evidentialism, on the other hand, could be characterized um, um Maybe not characterized, but but this would be the kind of thing that, that an evidentialist would say regularly. Dr. Frank Turek, who I respect, by the way, I, I you know I've got my issues with him, obviously, um, but uh, you know I, I I like Dr. Turek, but I, I think he's wrong on this. And here's here's what he says: When Jesus spoke to unbelievers, he wasn't firing Bible verses at them while assuming the authority of Scripture. Is that true? Well, of course, if you read your New Testament, you know, of course, that that is not true. Jesus responded basically two ways, with reductio ad absurdum questions, in other words, questions that reduce the other's position to absurdity. By the way, that's a presuppositionalist tactic. That's a pre, it's a philosophical move. Evidentialists use it all the time, but it is characteristic of the presuppositional approach to use a reductio ad absurdum on the other person's worldview. That that really characterizes it, okay? Um, and then secondly, you've got uh, Jesus answered questions that way with, with those kind of arguments, and then he also answered arguments with Scripture. Scripture and reductio ad absurdum, uh, arguments are the way that Jesus answered most of his um, uh, interlocutors when he was talking to them, and these are presuppositional tactics. Now, um, let me reiterate one more time here. Presuppositionalists use evidence. This I, I cannot stress this enough. They use evidence. CMI, AIG, ICR, these are all presuppositional in stance, and they are all large resources for evidence. You will find multitudes of evidence for the Christian faith, more than you can peruse probably in your lifetime if you were to, 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 to read everything on CMI, IAG, or AIG, excuse me, and, and ICR. Of course, if, if I'm assuming you kind of know what those are, but for those of you who might be new, that's Creation Ministries International, Answers in Genesis, and the Institute for Creation Research. Just for example, those are all presuppositional ministries and large resources for evidence. So to say the presuppositionalists uh, do not use evidence is just blatantly false. Um, again, the point being that we put it in the proper context and um, focus on the real issue, what is, which is worldview. The person's worldview. If somebody's worldview is wrong, then everything else that they believe about the uh, the world is going to be wrong. Lyle 
Jason Lyle says it this way in The Ultimate Proof of Creation. Quote, scientific evidence can be very useful in debates when everyone involved agrees on how the evidence should be interpreted. It would be perfectly appropriate for a creationist to argue with another creationist that certain evidence supports a scientific model. When both persons agree on the rules of interpretation, then they should draw the same conclusions when exposed to the same evidence. The problem with the origins debate is that creationists and evolutionists have a different opinion on what the rules of interpretation should be. They each interpret scientific facts in light of their respective worldviews. Both sides are always permitted to invent a rescuing device to explain seemingly contrary evidence. Therefore, we must use a different approach to ultimately settle the origins debates. Now, he proposes four uses for evidence, and with this, we're going to close. Four uses for evidence. Number one, confirming biblical creation. Notice he did not use the word prove. We do not prove God. We do not prove creation. We confirm it because the Bible and the Holy Spirit has given us everything we need to know to believe. Creation confirms or evidence confirms um, biblical creation. Of course, that was the context of his book, but but evidence confirms the Christian worldview. All right, number two, he says we can use it um, to confirm, or excuse me, um, as an introduction to worldviews. Now, this makes sense. Presuppositionalism helps us to understand how our worldview can make sense of the world and how others cannot. Evidence can help us to do that. Thirdly, showing inconsistency and arbitrariness. So here's an example uh, that Lyle gives. He says, um, it is often alleged that since the Bible has been copied so many times, what we have today cannot be historically reliable. Yet, historical research confirms the reliability of the Bible. The number of ancient manuscripts is large, and the time scale between when the originals were written and the oldest extant copies is small, which minimizes the possibility of transmission errors. By these criteria, the Bible is one of the most historically reliable manuscripts from the ancient world. And another example that I wanted to give here was SETI. SETI. It's, it's, it's inconsistent for you to say that the information contained in a cell is not um, was not intelligently designed, but then to expect a couple blips back in a certain pattern from space like the SETI program does, and that would be proof of intelligent life. That is inconsistent. So you can use evidence like that to show somebody being inconsistent or being arbitrary, that is, asserting their position without having good reasons uh, to believe it. And then fourthly, he says um, it can be used to, uh, evidence that is, can be used to introduce the ultimate proof. Um which could also be called the impossibility of the contrary, all right? Which, again, extending that means that no other worldview can be true, therefore Christianity is true. So if you really understand presuppositionalism, and I know there's going to be those of you who disagree with this approach, and that's fine, but if you really... I think from a biblical perspective, this is the biblical faithful method, biblically faithful method, and again, you can look at what I've written to get a, a better grasp on that. But it's so effective. It's so effective. It brings glory to God uh, because we show how, uh, just how it is that only God's world, only, only the worldview that says that we give glory to our creator, just read Romans 1, only that worldview can make sense of reality because there are things about our experience of reality that do not fit on the terms of the other worldviews that we encounter. So today, that is what we've been dealing with, getting worldviews right. A look at different worldviews, how we understand different terms to mean things, and um, uh, let's just do our best to be faithful as we're dealing with others in conversations who have different worldviews. Let's be cognizant of what they believe. Let's ask them about the things they believe so that we can respond accurately and with integrity. And let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. I want to say thank you for giving us the truth. Thank you for allowing us to study your word and your world. And I pray now that you would be with us this week. Help us in our conversations to be able to point people just one step closer to you, Father, to give them the gospel, to sow a seed in their life that you can uh, grow and work with, Lord, that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining me this week on The Creation 
Academy. And uh, we hope to see you next week, same time, same place. Hey, don't forget to go to jointca.co to get signed up for uh, the Creation Academy and uh, to get on the wait list um, over there at the website. Video training, audio training, uh, just like you heard in the intro. Uh, go over there now. Get signed up. Join TCA.co. And if you will, uh, if you feel compelled to, if this um, podcast has been helpful to you, leave a review on iTunes for us. That would be greatly appreciated. It would help others to see the podcast. All right. Thank you so much. I hope you have a blessed week and bye bye.